This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And the editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. Still large. <laughs> still at and still large and still editing. This week, our version of our summer reading guide, we share three author interviews, all of them recorded long ago in a time and place far, far away but all still wonderful and all still about books that I highly recommend to you to take to the socially distanced poolside or to read in your basement or wherever. Three options, okay? I spoke on the phone with Daniel Torday, author of the novel Boomer One. Boomer One is about the overthrow of the boomer generation. It's kind of a dystopian novel that has to do with young people deciding that the old people aren't retiring fast enough. Also, Stephanie had a conversation with Sarah Abravaya Stein, author of Family Paper, a Sephardic journey through the 20th century. And Liel and I together sat down with David Sachs and talked about his previous book, The Revenge of Analog, which is one of my all-time top five favorite books, no joke, as well as David's new book, The Soul of an Entrepreneur. But before we get to those and before we get to news of the Jews and to some updates on our own lives, I do want to, to touch base with uh, with both of you about last week's episode uh, where we talked about the death of George Floyd and others and try to, to figure out where we stood in the current chaotic world and, and the justice-seeking world in which we live. Liel, Stephanie, any thoughts uh, this week? Yeah, I was really moved by the response uh, we got and some of the feedback that we got. And the things that really moved me the most were people who said, yeah, you know, this episode wasn't perfect, but you guys are really, we're honest. And what we're seeing is that, you know, we're now in conversation with our listeners in a really interesting way where they can now respond to specific things we've said and we could continue this dialogue. And that's something I'm really excited about. I am too. You know, so many conversations these days, especially about these topics, are just shouting matches and sort of seem predicated just to get the other side to shut up or agree with everything you say. And when I looked at some of the feedback that we received, it, it was so incredibly gratifying to me to see how wonderfully thoughtful and engaging it was. There were a lot of people out there who disagreed with a lot of what I said, a lot of what Mark, you said, a lot of what Stephanie said, but they did it in a way that seemed designed not to end the conversation, but really to prolong it and to get it to the depths and the profundity that it needs to go to. I, I really feel... Jake Rue, we, we love you guys. I echo everything that you guys are saying, Liel and Stephanie, and so I have a multitude of thank yous. I'm really just filled with gratitude, and we'll get to why in a second when we talk about Father's Day. But first, the gratitude to the J. Crew for being so engaged and so responsive and so thoughtful and, and caring in their feedback. And so how was Father's Day? I'll just say quickly on Father's Day, they bought me the best presents in the world. I just, I, it says so much about Oppenheimerdom. I was given a bow tie with little dogs on it, a doggy bow tie. <laughs> so, so, so you guys have met before. They've met right. you. Yeah. yeah. A doggy <laughs> bow tie, a doggy t-shirt. Anna got me a little stuffed dog that's wearing a shirt that says, I love you to the moon and back. We're still trying to name that dog. If the J Crew has any recommendations for the name of my new stuffed dog. Hebrew or English. Let's assume the dog's becoming a Jew by choice, has to go in the mikvah, pick a Jewish name. But also collectively, they got together and bought me a tree hammock, this amazing like parachute material hammock that you hang from a tree. And I put it between two trees in my backyard, six feet off the ground and bought a stepladder to get up to it. And I can now lie there suspended above the chaos together with your friend Huckleberry Finn just exactly. after you finished painting the fence so happy I had the best father's day we went to the beach we got ice cream at Bishop's Orchard Creamery out in Guilford I am so lucky it was a privilege to be alive on father's day how about you Liel um 
it's still weird for me because Father's Day is literally the one thing that never made it to Israel. There are right now Thanksgiving Day celebrations in Israel from people who'd seen Thanksgiving on TV and want to do the same thing. Even they're though literally November, doing Fourth of July, oh, but they're, they're not doing Fourth of July. And in November, by the way, the temperature in Israel is like 83 degrees, right? So they're doing turkey and everything. Not Father's Day, which to everyone seems like, uh, what do you mean you celebrate the father? Why does the father need celebration? He do his work. He's a man. What is wrong with you? So wait, is there Mother's Day? No, we have Mother's Day. Mothers are <laughs> sacred and special. Wow. But dads? Dads get nothing. Uh, my Father's Day celebration was was incredible. Lisa made a terrific lunch. We all went out for ice cream. Uh, but the thing that overshadows everything these days uh, since I'm now here in the country is the little Weber grill that I bought at the local hardware store and cannot take my hands off of. I am grilling like a maniac. I'm like grilling vegetables. I'm grilling eggs. Like I'm doing everything on the grill. We're not talking about like that pod, that egg thing. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're talking fire. See, I'm standing there for about an hour a day and I'm staring at flames and I can feel my entire vocabulary being reduced to just sort of like two words like fire, good. And Mark, you're not a grill guy, are you? So I was going to say, this is, you know, in some ways I'm stereotypically male. Like I do like sports and I like arguing and mansplaining and uh manspreading it's called mark explaining and it predates all of this but (laughs) no part of me wants to stand outside at the grill so when the uh temple is rebuilt uh, on the temple mount i'm gonna be the one with the burnt offerings and you're gonna be like singing songs well i will say having been completely excluded from this entire conversation till now um i will chime in that i do like to grill do you i find it very satisfying i think it's really a lot of fun to see something go from one thing to another thing entirely so when the temple is rebuilt maybe i will be there doing the burnt offerings i support that wholeheartedly what i want to know though stephanie is we're not going to let you off the father's day hook that easily because although you are neither a father nor married to a father or a day uh you have the best relationship any human being has ever had with her father totally frictionless no neurosis perfectly seamless parental relations and what a father he is what does a woman like you do for a dad like howard so interestingly howie b uh the man a legend um i'll get him a card for father's day but he's his line has always been like every day is father's day and i don't think he's kidding but i think that's right like we're not really hallmarky as a family you know we'll do something for Mother's Day. It mostly is like, well, I'll go out to my parents' house for, for the day. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of more a day to celebrate. But I will say that I I saw my father last weekend. Um, and then this weekend on Father's Day, I actually saw my father-in-law. But it was all cleared, all kosher. I got the proper dispensation. Um, and I will see my father next weekend. But yeah, I think I think growing up without the pressure on those holidays was really healthy. Yeah, my parents were very low pressure about it, too. I mean, we tried. I, mean, I don't know that anyone's like, what are you getting me for Father's Day? Right. Where's my grill? I always say to my kids, just, you know what I want for Father's Day? Don't fight. I want a right. peaceful day. And actually, I, I, I had that. <laughs> you know what I want for Father's Day? Go away for a day. <laughs> Let me just read a book here quietly. <laughs> Which is sort of what they got me with with the hammock. But, you know, enough about the dads. Let's talk about us for a minute. It's about time. About time. This is our books episode. And I want to know from each of us, what is our reading life like? We, we actually, I don't think ever talk about this. We never just check in and say, what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you eating? Like, what is the stuff of our daily existence? And in honor of the authors that we have on today, I'd like to know from you, Stephanie Taylor Butnick, what is your reading life like right now? So 
right now, I think is a very different question, right? Like usually I'm reading a bunch of books for this show, a lot of books for um, the events I do where I interview authors. So I'm usually, I usually have a lot of reading, all of it like schoolwork, you know what I mean? Like all of it, like things I'm doing for a purpose. Um, obviously I enjoy those books as well, but I'm not, I'm not doing a lot of like non-work related reading, which means I'm reading a lot of Jewish books, I think is the takeaway. But um, to be honest, these last few months, I have found it very difficult to read, to sort of keep sustained attention focused on a page of words. I've been doing a lot of Audible. I got an Audible account and I've been listening to books hmm. um, because I've had so much trouble reading that I'm like, you know what? I, I actually really stopped listening to podcasts as well. Like I don't really listen to many news podcasts anymore. I've sort of really shifted my listening. So now all my listening is is mostly to books. And then I don't know if anyone's been listening to the Oh Hello podcast, but Nick Kroll does a great ad read for Audible. <laughs> Audible.com. <laughs> so I, too, have been listening to Audible. That's interesting. So you're now an audiobook person. Okay, Liel? So when when this whole started and we had, you know, pandemics and then killer hornets and then protests and then everything feels like it's just breaking apart, I would not have been surprised if someone said, well, you know, this is all happening because you guys angered Zeus and the gods. So I just went on this insane Greek kick. Uh, I... Reread the Iliad and the Odyssey, then jumped right into Aeschylus's Oresteia, uh, and then sort of just to you know spice things up a little bit, I read mm. the Aeneid mm. just to have mm. you know a little bit of a Latin flavor in there. That's all. That's all I've been reading. Four or five years ago, you were taking Latin and Greek lessons. Yeah. Are you? How is your Latin and Greek now? My Latin is fine. Uh, it's it's serviceable. It's work a day. Uh, it's, you know, stand in front of a pillar and understand the inscription <laughs> type thing. My Greek, uh, I, I sort of picked it up again a little bit now that I'm only living, you know, in, in Athens uh, and part-time in Troy, but still way to go. You are the weirdest person. Yes, that's true. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. Basically, may I just say something? The last three months of my life, other than spending time with my family, have been almost exclusively reading Greek literature and playing Animal Crossing on Nintendo. This tells you everything you need to know. Okay. What does it tell you about me that the last three or four books I've read, and I've been reading a lot for pure escapism, like my reading for pleasure life, which ebbs and flows. There are months when I don't read any books for pleasure, but then there's months when I just need to, and quarantine has been great for my ability to lie down and just zone out and read. Okay, so I've read a good bit of Richard Russo. I read The Straight Man. I read Empire Falls, like mm-hmm. sort of gritty American realism. I read The Counterlife by Philip Roth, and now I'm reading Operation Shylock. The only good book Philip Roth ever wrote. It's really interesting. I'm also, I finally finished my oral history of um, the new wave hits of the 80s, and now I'm reading an oral history of uh, surf rock of the early 60s. Probably also going to read Eric Clapton's uh, autobiography, which our friend Eric Ackland in Pittsburgh sent to me uh, from Amazing Books and Records, where I now get their book butler service. Um, And then I also, so this is going to be, J. Crew, like if you're zoning out, come back to me here. Let me reel you back in. Readers of a certain age will remember the Rabbi Small mystery novels. Friday, the Rabbi slept late. Saturday, the Rabbi. I just bought all of these this Friday. So so these these came out in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there were a bunch of them. You know, Tuesday, the Rabbi had breakfast. Wednesday, and they were cozies. They were like murder, she wrote. But the Rabbi, instead of the local mystery writer solving murders, the local Rabbi at a a North Shore town in Massachusetts, kind of like a Newburyport or Salem or Revere or whatever, the local Rabbi in a small town in Massachusetts, conservative Rabbi, solves murders. Now, I haven't yet read Friday, the Rabbi Slept Late, which somebody sent to me. But 
I discovered that Harry Kemmelman, who wrote these novels, actually wrote a dialogue between Rabbi Small and somebody who's thinking about converting, in which he tries to explain conservative Judaism, mm-hmm. not Orthodox Judaism, not refer- in which he basically, quite frankly, really says, like, if you're going to be a Jew, this is the kind of Jew you should be. And here's how you should think about all of our practices. Here's what's not Christian about it. Here's what's similar to other traditions. And I read this book and it's totally hokey. He's like at a Catskills resort and bumps into this woman who's thinking of converting to Mary. Instead of solving a murder, he basically leads her through the mysteries of Judaism. And I kid you not. You know how periodically people say like, I want to give one book to somebody to explain Judaism. Oh, the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Yes. Some people will say, give them this at Dean Steinsalt. Some people will say, give them this recent book by Sarah Hurwitz. Some people will say, oh, I need a diamond's guide to this. Honestly, I've never read a more sprightly, enjoyable, somewhat dated on the gender stuff, I will say. It came out in 1980 when conservative Judaism was very much in a different place. And I will say that. there's a lot, and, and that's the part I disagreed with near the end. But basically, 85% of it is the most concise, readable explanation of Judaism I have ever read. Rabbi Harry Small, go get conversations with the rabbi. <laughs> it's Anyway, so that's what I'm reading. I'm reading like Richard Russo, Harry Small, and Surf Rock. Have no fear. You are a weirdo. News of the Jews, who better to start with than our old friend, famous Jew, King of the Shondas, Bernie Madoff. Bernard. With less than 18 months to live, uh, he and his doctors say he applied for compassionate release from prison and he was denied. And I will be the first to say that I think I wish he'd gotten it. I I will tell you where my gut leads me, which is that I'm against the carceral state. I'm against imprisonment. And honestly, every time I see anyone getting released for, for compassionate reasons, whether just they're sick or near the very end of a long life, I think, yeah, you know, there's nothing served at this point. I don't believe that like some abstract sense of vengeance and justice has to be served by keeping him there. I will say the only other times we've had this conversation are about Nazis, right? Like, does it make sense to put this Nazi in jail? And I think we all sort of feel pretty strongly about it there. Um, and I obviously know that Bernie Madoff is not a Nazi, but I think there's a lot of the same symbolism at work there. I mean, I actually don't know what Jewish law says about what we should do in this situation, even when someone has committed a grave, if nonviolent crime, um, particularly against his own community, which is what Bernie did. It says that he may be released, but he has to spend the rest of his life working for the UJA Federation. <laughs> <laughs> the judge who who signed his 150-year sentence back in 2009 said that it was his, fully his intent that Madoff live out the rest of his life in prison. So, like, that is part of the deal. I mean, I think it's weird and sad, but then I think for a lot of people, there would be a real uproar if he was let out of prison. I want to say I think that I've been consistent, Stephanie, when we've talked about this before in saying that even the Nazis should get out. Like when they're all old and cute? Yes. I just don't see... First of all, I like the idea of of magnanimity. And I realize I'm not the victim here. It's not for me to be magnanimous. In Jewish terms, like the victims have the say, not random people offended by his existence. Nonviolent crimes are nonviolent crimes. And I understand that there's violence in stealing people's money. But but that's not even the issue. I just... I don't know. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what people have to say about this. He basically said, I have 18 months to live, but if you release me now, I can increase the return on investment by 10 months per year. <laughs> I could live to be 142. Liel, any news of the Jews you want to bring to us? 
Yeah, I have what I think is one of the absolute greatest stories of recent times. So um, there was a protest uh, in an Orthodox neighborhood the other week, and the police was there, and they sent an undercover cop dressed as a Hasidic Jew. However, the uh, occasion was Shabbat, and the undercover cop, not really having taken the time to study a lot about our people, was just standing there talking on his cell phone. Dude, this isn't very hard. If you want to blend in with us, just, just do a little light reading, man. The other thing about it, though, was if you go read the article, not only was one guy at his cell phone, I think there was another undercover cop there who had one of like the, the five cent shiny yarmulkes that only exist when you right. show up late for a bar mitzvah and don't have your own yarmulke. And nobody bothered to do the research that real yarmulke wearing Jews actually have somewhat more substantial, higher quality material. Like we don't use the flimsy satin ones. Hello, fellow Jews. Would anyone care for a BLT? <laughs> I think there were like a lot of great tweets about this uh, around the internet about like what they would do if it's like didn't recognize you. And then like soon you're getting invited over for Shabbos lunch or something like that. And then you're totally screwed. That is the basis for a new show called 21 J Street. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie, you want to round the corner with the last bit of news of the Jews? Yes. Uh, one of our favorite things on this show, I think, is when people use like traditional Jewish quotes and just like mangle them, use them out of context, steal them, you know. And and the latest example of that, um, this is an article in The Forward. It says a fundraising email from President Trump's re-election campaign manager asked would-be donors to give right away, asking them, if not now, then when? Um, this is amazing. Obviously, this is Hillel the Elder. and Dropping Hillel on the donor class. And we've, we've actually talked about this quote before because Ivanka Trump has posted it, like years ago, posted this and, and credited Emma Watson as the speaker. <laughs> so that's when we first started our ongoing joke. So it's good to see the Trump family continuing to like double down on Hillel appropriation. And Emma Watson then credited actually Hermione, who credited Ron Weasley. It's originally a Quidditch term. You're on one broom. You're <laughs> that's right. Last fall, I was lucky enough to speak with Sarah Abravaya Stein about her book, Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century, which follows one family's journey from Salonika and across the globe through their letters and other papers they left behind. It was a fascinating book. Sarah is a fascinating writer and thinker and researcher. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Hi, I'm here with Sarah Abravaya Stein. She is an historian and the author of Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century. Sarah, I'm so excited to be with you today, not just because your book is great, but because we are often accused on this podcast correctly of being Ashkenormative. So I really jumped at the chance to talk to you and talk to you about this Sephardic family story. But let's start from the beginning. Sephardic Jews, Sephardi, where do they come from? Who are they? Sephardic Jews is a term that in contemporary United States, contemporary Israel, is actually used with multiple meanings, but historians mean something specific. And it often is not quite the same as the way we use the term popularly. We tend to talk about this population as the community of Jews who left medieval Iberia in the course of the expulsions and inquisitions of the late 15th century. And when they left, they went to a number of places. They went to the Dutch Empire, they went to North Africa, they went to the Americas, and the largest number went to the Ottoman Empire. 
And it is that community that maintained a Judeo-Spanish language based on medieval Castilian that came to be known as Ladino and lived in the Ottoman heartland of Judeo-Spanish culture, the Eastern Mediterranean, for some 500 years. The other communities sometimes are referred to as Western Sephardim. They each have their own particularities, but my heart, much of my research has been following this Judeo-Spanish speaking population of the Ottoman lands. So you have two last names, Abravaya and Stein. So depending on one, like Stein seems maybe to lean more Ashkenazi. That's true. That's true. I mean, like so many Jews, I'm a bit of a mutt. And Sephardim Sephardic Jews are no less mixed in their cultural heritage than Ashkenazi Jews. So I'm a product of mixing and meeting cultures. The Abravaya is the name of my mother's family from Chinakale, Turkey. And Stein is my father's name from a mixed Ashkenazi background. So this book tells the story of one particular Sephardic family, and it goes just from countries and generations and really, really weaves this amazing story from archives. Could you tell us, how did you find the Levy family? Called different things at different times. We'll call them the Levy family. Right. Right. Well, I was working on a project with my friend and former teacher Aaron Rodrigue with the goal of translating the first Judeo-Spanish or Ladino memoir ever written, which was written by a rather idiosyncratic but also cultural luminary of Salonika of the late 19th century by the name of Sadi Basalel Ashkenazi Alevi. And he was an editor and a printer and something of a firebrand who found himself in contestation with the rabbinical authorities of his native city, Salonika, which was a real cultural heartland for Sephardic Jewry of this region. And as Aaron and I were finishing the translation of this document, which was a handwritten notebook of a memoir, which was completed in the late 19th century, but begun decades earlier, and I came to wonder what had happened to his family. And I was able to trace the journey of this notebook backwards because it had turned out to have remarkable longevity, this vulnerable notebook. I had traveled from Salonika to Paris, to Rio de Janeiro, to Jerusalem. And I wondered how and what had become of the families that presumably had ferried it along its way. And that set me off as historical earworms sometimes do on a a decade-long investigation into the history of this branching family. You know, you start the book with a really, really great explanation of how it was that you found all of these family papers, which is the name of the book. Um, Could you start with a little bit of a reading of that? Sure, my pleasure. Today, the papers of the Levy family are spread across nine countries and three continents. The largest collection, the papers of Leon Levy, is kept by his four grandchildren in a private vault in Rio de Janeiro. It consists of nearly 5,000 handwritten and typed letters, telegrams, photographs, legal and medical documents, and miscellany, address books, expired passports, and more. By far the largest private archive I have encountered as a professional historian and near-obsessive document hunter. The Levy family papers catalog the lives and losses of multiple generations contain papers written in eight languages, and reflect correspondence among members of a single family spanning the globe. This is a Jewish story, an Ottoman story, a European story, a Mediterranean story, and a diasporic story, a story of how women, men, and children experienced wars, genocide, and migration, the collapse of old regimes, and the rise of new nations. The Levy papers also reveal how this family loved and quarreled, struggled and succeeded, clung to one another, and watch the ties that once bound them slip from their grasp. Let's start with this vault. 
in Rio. How do you convince a family to let you see their private documents and something maybe even they haven't seen or is sacred and kept locked away? One answer to your question is about building rapport and trust with a family and explaining one's interest in the past and in treating these materials judiciously. And sometimes you uncover as a historian sensitive facts and stories that a family might not like you to unearth. But in my experience, this family in Rio and the other branches of the family around the world who were kind enough to let me into their homes and let me view papers and photographs and many other kinds of documents were enormously generous, open-minded, and invested in this idea that it was of value to tell their family's history, even, I think, the sensitive bits, of which sometimes they weren't aware. And I think that meeting these contemporary generations of a centuries-old family allowed me to understand the papers and situate them in a contemporary context, which was lovely and fantastic and brought them to life. Let's talk about that dirty laundry that you uncovered. There is a Nazi collaborator in the family. Did they know? Did they not want to talk about it? What happens when you come across this crazy secret and will you tell us who this character was? I don't think the family did know. Some of them will not know until this book is published. There was a cousin, a young man at the time of the Nazi occupation of Salonika, who comes to represent the Jewish Council of Salonika to the Nazis. He is a Nazi-appointed official, likely, it appears. And he is a notorious sadist and testimony that one can find in repositories of testimonies in Greek and in Hebrew and in French and in English describe him in many voices as being a force of tremendous evil in the ghetto, the Baron Hirsch ghetto of Salonika. Would the Nazis have been able to deport the Jews of Salonika without the assistance of a Nazi abettor? Yes, they would have. But he is vilified in the memory of this community because of this ultimate betrayal. I didn't learn about him actually from the family papers. And this is an amazing thing about digging into family history is that the stories a family tells about itself and the stories that people tell to one another about themselves aren't always the full story. That's human nature. So it was only by reading the family's papers alongside documentation that came from other sources that I was able to unearth this bombshell of a revelation. And I think when I reread the family papers with that knowledge in mind, certain things I realized were coded ways of talking about this trauma. And so reading back through the papers, I was able to understand that the family was struggling, not only in the time of the war, but after the war with this horrific realization. But even in private correspondence, they did so in code and without naming their relative. And so had you flagged that when you read it or you were just like, oh, I don't really know what they're talking about? I had to read and reread these papers many times. And still today, the book is finished, but still today, if I go back, I will see something different. That's just the nature of historical research. And also, I think the nature of working with handwritten, intimate documents, they look different to you. There's one beautiful document in this collection that is the sole letter of a mother to her emigre son. She's in Salonika. He is in Brazil. And I suspect that she was illiterate because it was written by her daughter to her son in her voice. And I had read it many times in, in Ladino. And it was only after I shared it with a close friend and colleague who looked at it and said to me, look at this closely. I think it's stained with tears. And I hadn't seen it the first time. So you read and you reread differently. 
So after I discovered in other kinds of documents, archival documents of various varieties, the story of this war criminal who was tried and is executed after the war, after a civic trial run by the Greek state at the behest of the Jewish community of Salonika, it was only after I was able to read other documentation like the trial records that I could reread the family papers and see those hidden clues that I missed the first time. I guess we all have our black sheep um, in the families. Who are some of the, you know, the brighter spots in these families? There is rather predictably trauma in this story. I mean, this is a family that survived wars and forced migration and genocide, et cetera. But there's also a lot of joy. And I think one of the things that's so amazing about reading private correspondence among a family at a time when they didn't have other means to communicate is that they indulge in telling each other about the daily ups and downs and pleasures of ordinary life. The trips that you might take to a spa town outside Salonika to escape from the August heat, let's say, or the innovation of a young woman who is a seamstress using a skill inherited from her mother and from her grandmother and great-grandmother before her, who in the interwar period, because she needs to make money, her husband is ill, she offers to the women of Salonika the first pants that they have ever worn. So these are treasures, little footnotes of history, let's say, and especially footnotes of history that concern women and sisters and mothers and daughters that so often are, are left out of historical accounts, sometimes for lack of sources, sometimes for lack of interest, that come through when the family is the frame. Something that was really interesting was how, you know, members of this family, our patriarch in particular, really brings printing, like the idea of printing and letters, that is something that they brought to the communities they were a part of. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Printing was the family trade. And the memoirist who I mentioned a moment ago, Sadi Basilel Ashkenazi Alevi, inherited a press from his father and from his grandfather before him. And the family were known as printers. And this was typical in the Sephardic world, not only in Salonika, but in other centers like Alexandria or Istanbul or, or other sites where families had a niche in the printing business. And this press published some of the most popular newspapers of turn of the century, early 20th century Salonika in French and in Ladino. They published wedding invitations. They published the Zohar, a mystical compendium. They published all measure of things, books, books with beautiful plates in the front that give honor to the Levy family name. And through their printing, they were arbiters of cultural change and modernization in this area and further afield because these publications traveled. So printing was a way that they were culturally significant, even though it didn't actually earn them a whole lot of money. They were sort of cultural powerhouses without being wealthy. So it's not really an elite story as much as it is a story about cultural influence, which they certainly commanded. There's something really fascinating because you have this correspondence between members of the family. You also have a lot of like quotidian documents that themselves may not mean much, like a receipt or a medical bill. What was it that you learned from those less significant documents? Well, it's so important to read documents against each other to try to weave a really well-rendered tapestry of lives. If you're just reading one voice or one kind of voice, I think you're not necessarily going to have a full picture. So 
there were all kinds of sources that would be easy to ignore. And you mentioned some, medical documents, receipts, envelopes, that actually contained in them a wealth of information. One of the figures I'm really drawn to in this book is a woman named Estherina, who had an unhappy life by many measures, although she also was a dreamer and a striver, left Salonika at a young age, to go first through Europe and to Paris and ultimately to Rio with her husband and her child and then returns to Europe to seek medical care on her own when she is mostly blind in 1939, a very inauspicious year to travel as a solo Jewish woman who is nearly blind, who, as it turns out, although she didn't realize it, I think at the time, lacked the proper citizenship papers. And I found her story so compelling, but it was really important for me to read all the medical documents to understand the vicissitudes of her life. So there was a sort of byway into the history of ophthalmological care that I was required to journey down to understand what she was struggling with, the surgeries she underwent, the fears that she had about what blindness would bring. Something I was thinking about a lot while reading this book was, you know, you call yourself an obsessive document hunter. This family left behind so much, this treasure trove of documents about their everyday life. But what is it that our records look like today? I mean, could you do this with a family who emails all the time and, you know, tweets and Instagram? Not to be like, oh, you know, technology is bad, but what, what does it look like for you as a historian who, who likes to dig into these things? Well, it's, it's a through line in this book to think about the ways in which correspondence mattered to a family at a time when it was their primary means of communication, and to reflect somewhat speculatively on what it means for families and what it means to be a family without that linking thread. For them, it was everything, and especially for a family that was in its own global diaspora from one another. Letters could take days to reach a family member, but they could take weeks. And in the course of war or displacement, they might, of course, never arrive. I think that we have different fears about the ephemeral nature of communication today. On the one hand, we think nothing goes away. That's a source of terror. You you could write, you know, a tweet or a social media entry and it will always be findable. And like that's, in the Library of Congress. I right, feel like that's, that's what we always that's, hear. <laughs> sure. And that's terrifying. And you're told don't write anything that you wouldn't want to see on a newspaper, let's say, or online publicly because everything is saved. But on the other hand, our modes of communication are so fleeting and I think so spontaneous and so vast that future historians, while they could tell a lot about our daily lives and our correspondences in all these forms and our communications, I think could not use this documentation to tell the history of a family. I think that the framework has changed and families now are relying on DNA tests to understand who they are and who their relatives are. And so as I write in the book, spit and a computer become these crucial tools to figure out who you are related to, what family is to you. Now, for these folks that I'm investigating, that didn't matter at all. What mattered to them was staying in contact, communicating. And sometimes those communications were painful, and sometimes they were angry. And sometimes they were about things like divorce or bankruptcy rather than about the pleasures of taking the waters. But it was a lifeline. And their legacy, I think, in some way was a body of writing. And writing held them together until finally the construct of family started to fray for them because time and space and the generations 
began to pull them apart. Sarah Abravaya Stein, your latest title is Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century. Thank you so much for being with us on Unorthodox. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So Mark and I are both middle-aged, cantankerous men. And as such, we don't do very well with all this digital thingamabobs. We like real things. We like analog. So back in February, we spoke with David Sachs when we were still in the studio about why real things matter. Little did we know then that digital life was about to have its revenge and put us all on Zoom forever. But this interview is still a throwback to a time in America in which analog mattered. Have a listen. Our next guest is a, a personal hero of mine. I could read all about his career, about how he worked his way up from, you know, a small town Canada to, are you actually Canadian or just live there now? I'm from Toronto. It's I know. A what, city it's of it's a million. small town. We won the NBA championship. We're going to win it again. So, you know, we're not, <laughs> it ain't Muncie. He worked his way up from a small farm outside Montreal to write for such publications as Bloomberg Businessweek and New York Magazine, and he's been on NPR, the New York, yada, yada, yada. But here's the thing. He wrote one of my favorite books of all time. He's written a few books. He wrote a book about the history of the deli, yada, yada. But he wrote The Revenge of Analog, which I think is in some ways my Bible. I think it's one of the great works of journalism ever written. We're going to talk a lot about it. His next book is called The Soul of an Entrepreneur, and we're going to talk about that as well. But first of all, David Sachs, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. Thank you. You are the first Jewish male who's ever talked to me about books that wasn't talking about Save the Deli. Is that right? Especially Which back, I haven't read. I'll just especially, come clean. Yeah. It predates Tablet. I, 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 I love that Of book. course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's <laughs> like, of course I love people that will be like, it's like, oh, you're still writing? And it's like, yeah, what did you do? Oh, I had this book. It became a bestseller. Yeah. What about that deli thing? And then it's like a, a tirade <laughs> into like certain <laughs> things about deli. So, uh, well, you found the one Jew here, Mark Oppenheimer, who does not care for food. Oh, and who does not think food is an important part of being Jewish. The, the look Thank on your face God, there. God, we're not having this conversation. The look on your face there, the, I'm going to lose you. I thought I had you when I said that The Revenge of Analog was one of my Bibles. Yeah, say some, say some more nice things. So I, don't okay. I don't so judge. So that book, which came out, what, five years ago? Three years ago. The Day of Trump's Election. The day, That must have been good for sales. Oh, my God. <laughs> it, it, was like a, it was like manna from hell. I mean, it was... Take me to the day. I, I, need, the day. I need to be there. Have the book launch the night before. Wake up a little hungover. Everyone's like, don't worry. Hillary's going to win. It's not going to affect your thing. I'm like, all right, you know, whatever, she'll win and then the thing will happen. And then, you know, that night, 
watching that New York Times death needle go to take a bath. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Wake up the next morning, the world is over. Um, sorry, Palm Beach listeners. Um, uh, <laughs> and various relatives. Right. And then like nothing, you know, it's like, well, what about press? It's like, there's nothing's going to happen for the next while. Everybody like, even the publisher didn't write me back for like three days because they were all just cowering at home like right. everybody else. So, and like, then I went out on book tour to, you know, Seattle, D.C. Portland. Yeah. Cambridge, um, Mass. Upper West Side <laughs> and San Francisco, like bastions of Trump Republicanism and white nationalism, clearly. Right. There was like four people in the – I mean, it was just the most depressing Could we book back tour. up a second yeah. and say that – I think of conventional wisdom as being that you don't publish books into presidential election season anyway. Like someone's got to be the one that lands on that day. Like your pub date. Did you ever think? I mean, I realize you're from Canada where yeah. these things go down. No, differently. no, we, we understand. You your, get our election yeah. days, right? Yeah. First Tuesday after the first Monday yeah. in November. No one thought that's not an ideal day, no matter what happens. It was like I questioned <laughs> it and they were like, look, like it's just the date. It's the date it comes out. And I always tell this to people who are publishing books at the first time. It's like books are schmuttas. It's a retail product in a store that has to fit into a sales catalog and a sales cycle or that has to go to production in a factory that's printing these things. So like they're like, yeah, there's a date, but like it's really just for the retail and, and all that stuff. Anyway, long story short, after that initial kind of people cowering in their shells for a couple of weeks, then they came out and they're like, oh, yeah, there's this book. And then it just took on its life and whatever, you know, it did well and yada, yada, so yada. This book, Here we right? are talking about it right. before the next book comes out, not on election day right. this year. Thank right. Close that. enough. Almost Pesach. <laughs> Almost. They were like, they were like, this is the pub date. And I'm like, that's the first day of Pesach. All right. Guys, sorry. Just the anti-Semitism in the publishing industry. It's it's rife with anti-Semitism. But this book that came out on Trump's election day, The Revenge of Analog, it's the story of people who are carving out a space for analog products in a digital age, whether it's stationary, books, watches. Yeah. Uh, and, and ideas. Like and the first ideas. half is analog things, and right. the second half of the book is really analog ways of doing things, which might be making things with your hands as a business instead of just doing sort of digital things in the ether. Or, you know, the chapter on education is kind of really saying, well, what is the value of this education system that we're trying to disrupt with e-learning and online learning, right? And so it's a little more abstract. Right. And yeah. it it fed into all of my preconceptions and hopes and dreams and all my optimisms because I'm a pretty analog kind of person, as Liel will tell you. Probably more curmudgeonly than you are. Like my hunch reading the book is that you were being descriptive about some things you thought were going on, but I wasn't sure how prescriptive you were being. Like if you thought that analog ways of doing things or life before digital stuff had colonized us was better, like were you advocating a more analog world or were you just saying, here are some people like those who make Shinola watches or those who, you know, make this kind of music or this kind of stationery or whatever, who are doing analog stuff. It's a living option, but not necessarily one for everybody. I think it's the idea of balance, right? The narrative of digital and the narrative pushed by Silicon Valley from a marketing perspective and from a cultural perspective is that this new thing that we've created is the replacement for the old thing, the older analog way of doing things, the older object. And it is better. It is smaller. It is cheaper. It's free. It's invisible. And therefore, the old thing is irrelevant, right? It no longer serves a purpose out with the old in with the new. And what I was saying was, look, here are people who are bringing back that older way of doing things. And they're not doing because 
they're just nostalgic for it. They're doing it because they see a value in it, a aesthetic value, whether it's something like vinyl records and listening to them or making them, a work value. So, you know, a lot of things about moleskin notebooks and journals and paper was that the people who were using them were often people in the technology business or in MIT. And they were saying, this is a better tool for me to go through my thoughts and think and create than the digital tool that I also use for my work. But for this part of it, I want to be able to write things down. I want to use a whiteboard. I want to use paper. I don't want to be constrained by software. And they're saying there is a value in these things that is different and often complementary to the value of the newer sort of digital things, but that they're distinct and you have to balance them on their merits. And there was a reason why this was growing. Because I think when this first started happening, first with vinyl records, and then you started seeing it with film cameras and watches and other sorts of analog technology. One of the great examples I see of this is, um, I feel like Kindles are a little bit over, aren't they? Like, didn't it turn out that books were actually a better technology for most people? So, so I, I published my first book, the aforementioned Save the Deli, in 2009, when the Kindle, the year the Kindle first came out, I believe, or maybe it was like 2008. And I was terrified. I was like, great. I finally publish a book and it's happening at the time that like the equivalent of the MP3 player happens in my industry. I'm done. And there was this initial huge jump and then it really kind of stopped. It peaked at 10%. And so now when my new book comes out, it's like 80% is going to be in paper. 10% an audiobook. I right. just recorded it last week. 10% is eBooks and Kindles and stuff. This is what I tell people is like, there's no logical reason to buy a paper book for $25 or whatever it costs, right? To buy a paperback or a hardcover. You don't get any more words. So people can see what you're reading. Right. But there's no snob value to having a file on your But Kindle. beyond that, it's just people just prefer it. Yeah. Like there is a preference to that tactility and the object and the ability to go to a store or a library and pick it up and pass it on to someone and read it so people can see it and put it on your bookshelf. In a way, I think it was really the perfect book at the perfect time though, because Analog struck me and I, I had no idea it actually came out on that day, but it strikes me as kind of perfect and prescient because I think the lesson, the real lesson, not the bullshit, you know, MSNBC, Fox News lesson of the last three years has really been about a return or an eagerness to return to a community that this mm -hmm. kind of analog sort of thinking makes possible and preserves for us, even as so many of us rush into this eagerness to replace everything with, you know, apps. Yeah. Asking about the consequences of that election too, like one of the major things that it did was really pierce the bubble of sort of Silicon Valley's Utopianism. Um, utopianism. Right. And especially around social media, right? The role that Facebook really played in that election, disinformation, hacking, disillusioned a lot of people around that. And so it sort of caused them to stand back. And as much as it was about like people associated with like, oh yeah, record players and film cameras and cool watches and whatever, you know, it has sparked or been part of this bigger conversation. What I've been amazed by is how many people have told me, oh yeah, I was at Rosh Hashanah this year and, and the rabbi mentioned your book in their sermon or hearing about it on blog posts from different rabbis or actually priests. Like I keep reading about all these different clergy, especially like Catholic clergy who are talking about like the revenge of analog. Really? Mm -hmm. You're big with the Catholics? Yeah. One of them was like, I don't know if Mr. Sachs is a Christian. I was like, <laughs> Boy, <laughs> such research you've Be done. like, man, <laughs> I, I am tonight. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But in that sense, of, I knew so many Jewish institutions 
stations and synagogues that were like, how do we connect with the young people? The young people, we need apps. We Every school needs an app. We need to communicate. We need a Facebook page. You know, I remember a couple years ago, someone I know who's in rabbinics, let's just say, was like, I want to create a Shiva app. You don't even have to go visit them anymore. You just <laughs> yeah, press a you button. send your things and it, a, bub, a little oh, bubka emoji appears. And that's, you know, that deeper essence of this stuff, right, is that... Yes, it's about objects. It's about these things. It's about some possibly inklings of nostalgia that bring it back to it. But, you know, most of the people that are driving this and driving the sales of vinyl records and returning to these older ways of doing things are actually younger people, people in their 30s, people in their 20s, teenagers, for whom the computer and the phone, it's not special. It's there. It's always right. been there. They want something more. Right. The computer is just furniture. And so not, yeah, I yeah. think the thing that they actually really want is your new book, which they will now go and buy, Mwah. but you will tell us all about right now. Yes. Thank you. Look at that. <laughs> what a... What I loved about We're such pros. was the seamless. <laughs> Did you see the seamless segue like there? This, like this tapestry you have covering David, this. David, we you. go to school for that. There's like Segways 115. Segways and, 115. And Liel got an A+. Plus. At the I Yeshiva did. University exactly. School. <laughs> of communication. Or the, the Muncie, school. Muncie <laughs> Yeshiva Muncie. of um, podcasting. The soul of an entrepreneur. This book, I've always been fascinated in entrepreneurs. I've never really written about big corporations. You know, all my books, Save the Deli. The second book that nobody read, The Tastemakers about food trends, analog, it all focused on individuals who had started businesses, owned businesses, ran businesses, that personal level. And I was sort of thinking like that's always something that I've been interested in. But over the past couple of years, especially when I was living here in New York like 10 years ago after the, during the height of the recession, I moved here the day Lehman Brothers collapsed. Again, timing is impeccable. You ride the crest of history. God knows. What's, let's hope we get out of the studio alive today. I was always focused on writing stories about entrepreneurs. I spent like a week working in a coffee shop in Brooklyn, wrote a story for the New York Times about who are these laptop astanis? Like, what do they do? This is pre-WeWork. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, I was thinking about what to do next. And I'm like, there's something about this. Like, there's something going on. We're living in this golden age of entrepreneurship. There's all these startups, these co-working spaces. There's more entrepreneurs than ever. You hear about it. You read about it. It's like the entrepreneurs suddenly, it's hot. It's at the sort of center of the zeitgeist. And I wanted to chronicle this golden age of it. And so I started talking with my friend, Gregory Kaplan. Greg. Jewish. Uh, Australian <laughs> economist who was at Princeton at the time, now is the University of Chicago, brilliant man. And I was telling him all this and, you know, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur now and this is this golden age. And he's like, is it, mate? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, is it? I was like, yeah, of course. Like, look at all the ads, the co-working spaces and the, the profiles of entrepreneurs. The apps. Like, yeah, so many apps. The apps. <laughs> He's like, you should look into that. So he sends me some papers. And what you actually see is that in the United States and around most of the Western world, entrepreneurship, if you measure it by the number of people who work for themselves, self-employed or start businesses, has been declining since the year I was born right? 1979. Entrepreneurship is now at this sort of low point and has been stagnant. So if you look beyond that small segment of the population who is starting venture-funded startups and profiles of Silicon Valley founders and various, you know, direct-to-consumer companies, out in that real economy, out in the world that touches everyone, there are fewer people becoming entrepreneurs than ever before. See, I've been saying this. So where I live in New Haven, one of the things I've noticed, and New Haven is one of those cities that was down and now it's up again, and people are moving there. Like people yeah. leave Brooklyn because of rents and they want to come do their art or their thing or whatever in New Haven. And there's all these gaps in the economy. It's like, why is no one starting the business for X, Y, or Z? And I think that there's no entrepreneurial class anymore. Like there seems to be that people who are financially literate and have a lot of skills, they want to go work for a big company or a startup. They don't think I want to take out a small business loan and 
I've just felt this in my kishkas that like we have a dearth of people. Your saying, kishkas oh. are very prescient. Prescient kishkas, Mark. Not the first um, time he's heard that. <laughs> <laughs> that was my punk band in high school. The prescient kishkas. It it is true. There is less of a propensity for people to become entrepreneurs today. That's sort of the book's starting point. So I wanted to find out how what I call the startup myth, which is the one that's perpetuated by Silicon Valley that I talked about before, really captured and almost took hostage the meaning of entrepreneurship. Right. Because it became this sort of trope of like, oh, an entrepreneur is a young guy, a rebel, drops out of Stanford in his 20s, starts a company, disrupts raises a, a whole industry, disrupts a whole industry, raises billions in venture capital, and sort of the world's their oyster. That's what being an entrepreneur is. And I was like, well, hold on. That's not the entrepreneurs I know. That's not my father, son of a failed entrepreneur in the Montreal Schmanta business, goes to law school, fights his way through that, gets an articling job at a WASPY firm in Toronto. After a year, they're like, Sachs, you're too entrepreneurial. You can't work here. <laughs> Which is code for Jewish. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Very much. <laughs> Those um, entrepreneurs. <clears throat> Sachs, uh, you're too entrepreneurial. entrepreneurial. Let's go with that. Right. Yeah. They, yeah, they sounded like that too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, starts his own law firm and finds his own niche, starts working with people moving from Hong Kong to Toronto in the 80s when they're sort of trying to get away before the Chinese take over and builds his own practice and goes through recessions and goes through ups and downs. And even today, he still does his thing. He's scrapping, right? Or you, like or me, independent or my freelancer. Independent for, like, freelancer. Yeah. My mother-in-law, Hustling. Fran, who was one of the first women in Canada to get an MBA and still sell schmatas out of a card table table at like old folks' homes and hospitals because she loves, yeah. Ma- oh, don't even get her started on Mahjong because <laughs> she loves cash. And it comes from her parents, the Holocaust survivors, <laughs> whose father like owned a stationery store, a dry goods store pretty much, sold feathers, scrap metal. Like we are a people of entrepreneurs. And- I am from that. And I wanted to discover what the meaning is, what that soul is. And so your book looks at this Syrian restaurateur. It looks at these people who do like grass-fed beef. It looks at all these different entrepreneurs who were failing a lot at the time or struggling. Or just surviving, surviving as most entrepreneurs by. do, right, right? Right. See, but to me, there was actually a fascinating linkage, I think, between this book and the second half of the previous book because at its core, the entrepreneurial spirit that you describe in this new book is a really analog spirit. It's a spirit of getting up and doing things and feeling the thing. And I think part of what you're noticing right there in the beginning is the notion that the Silicon Valley myth almost digitized that concept, right? It turned it into something so ephemeral and so disconnected from the actual reality of entrepreneurship that people are like, oh, well, yeah, being an entrepreneur right now means this, whereas in reality, it actually means selling Shmata's off of a car table in old age homes. Yeah, and I think it can be both, right? Like if you have a digital card table Shmata sales business, you're still facing the same emotional, spiritual journey as your grandfather, great-grandfather who had the push cart. I mean, the key to all entrepreneurs and the thing that links them all together is that freedom and independence to pursue their idea however they want without sort of direction from someone else, the uncertainty that comes with that, both financial and in all sorts of other areas that they accept for that, and the reward, the financial reward that may exist or may never come in the way that you hope, but the other rewards that come with that too, which is the rewards of that freedom, the rewards of the autonomy, the reward to like not have to shave. Like you, shave once a week, apparently. Yeah, I shave today, but you know, I have meetings with... 
one of the really Croatia people. I mean, the book, which was just really interesting, I'm getting into the kind of like quotidian existence of people who have so much skin in the game. One of the things that's upsetting then is the derision they face from certain Silicon Valley people. You talk about that professor at Stanford is like, we don't train accountants in Indiana. We train people who are in disrupt whole industries. Like some of the subtext, especially of like the first third of the book is these assholes in Silicon Valley who think only they know what entrepreneurship is. I mean, there's a real, they have a real elitism about what they do. Which is interesting because they talk about disrupting the East Coast elites, and yet they've built this own bubble of elitism, which, yeah, they're not wearing Brooks Brothers suits, they're wearing Patagonia vests, but, you know, when you talk about venture capital, I mean, it's 60% of it goes to white males who graduated from Harvard or Stanford of the money. You know what percentage of venture capital money in 2018 went to women? Three? 7%. 2.2%. All-time high. So how do we disrupt this disruption? Save us. David Well, I, I think, first of all, the most important thing is reclaiming the meaning of what it means to be an entrepreneur, right? An entrepreneur is not just the founder of a startup. That is a class of entrepreneur, and they are entrepreneurs in the, in the same right as everyone else. But if you work for yourself, you need to take agency and actually call yourself an entrepreneur. That's okay. And by doing that, they're sort of reclaiming the narrative. The other thing that then follows that is – in education and institutions where we're supporting entrepreneurship through scholarships and programs and incubators and accelerators, all of those over the past decade or so have increasingly focused almost exclusively on the Silicon Valley startup model. But that only represents a tiny fraction of the businesses that people start and want to start. So what are the ways to expand that to include a broader, more diverse group of entrepreneurs from every background, from every geography, and who want to start all sorts of different kinds of businesses because we're still going to need restaurants. We're still going to need dry cleaners and accountants and law firms and mechanic companies, regardless of how disruptive and wonderful our economy gets through the latest app or startup, right? And those entrepreneurs need support too. They need financial support. But what they also need is a level of sort of emotional support because entrepreneurship is incredibly lonely. Your book is very good on that. Yeah. Yeah. Psychic costs of being in the trenches by yourself. And I don't know. I mean, do either you and your family have entrepreneurs or? Oh, oh, yes. And so, you know, who are they? Well, my my father's a big crime entrepreneur. (laughs) He went into business for himself. He did very well. For a while. Leo's dad robbed banks. He did. Okay. Literally. That is his own kind <laughs> of That's a one-man business. My grandfather started it up. My grandfather started a small import-export company, which sounds like the CIA, but actually they exported farm equipment to Cuba. The revolution was hard on that business. But yeah. um, I'm a journalist. Like A lot of what you're saying, which is, look, sometimes you don't have enough work, and then sometimes you have too much, and both yeah. are enormously stressful. Never the perfect amount. Never. You never have the right flow. Look, um, people should definitely buy The Soul of an Entrepreneur. I can't let you out of here without asking you two questions just because you are, you're my Rav. I hereby dub you the crew neck Rav. I've wanted to ask you this. I have you in the room. First of all, Tablet Magazine has covered this and I forget what our answers are. We talked to linguists. We talked to people more qualified than you, but I feel like you'll just know this. Why do Canadian Jews not have the hardcore Canadian accent? Because they're mostly from urban areas. They're from the cities that don't have a very specific accent. So Jews in Toronto, there's really no accent. All the Jews in Toronto live along a street called Bathurst. The community started at the south end of Bathurst, and it has literally just worked its way north like 20, 25 miles over the years as the suburbs have grown. The further north you get, there's a tinge to it. The Montreal Jews, of which I'm a descendant, have a very specific Montreal Jewish accent. It's an elongated 
A. So man, Barry, Tamara, Samara. That is like, you could tell a Montreal Jew a mile away by that. But if you're talking about like the Bob and Doug McKenzie kind of Canadian accent, that is a product of (laughs) rural, of like- like, Banff. Not Banff, but regions close around Banff, right? Or the the Maritimes, right? The real, so there there are certain, like there are Jews I know who, you know, moved from the shtetl and ended up at some dry goods store in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Nicole Town, and they had elements of that accent. But even the great Michael Wex, Yiddishist, and I imagine friend of this podcast, like he's from Lethbridge, Alberta, which is a bastion of hoserdom. And, you know, I mean, he's, he sounds like a, he just walked out of a Schwitz, which he probably, <laughs> he did. probably did. So, you know, th- it's insulated in that. Okay. More important. Why did bookstores kind of make it, kind of pull through and music stores didn't? New York is an exception in the music store thing. So if you go to other cities, music stores, record stores have actually grown in recent years. I think in New York, it's just a product of the real estate, of the prices. In Toronto, we have the highest concentration of record stores outside of Amsterdam. There's like 13 or 14 within a 10-minute walk of my apartment or my house. I don't live in an apartment anymore. So yeah, this place is a hellhole and you should move. We we couldn't agree Hallelujah, more actually. Hallelujah, amen to that. Amen, Sela. If people want to find your works, should we just go to the independent bookstore near you and get The Soul of an Entrepreneur? Or the library. Or the library. No, you don't want a library. You want them to buy. No, the yeah. libraries buy books. That's a good point. The libraries They're are They're big good. buyers of books. David Sachs, thank you for Save being- Save some money. Too thank few you. copies. Thank you for visiting us. Kind of an entrepreneur are you? <laughs> thank you for visiting us from- Solace. Edmonton. Yasha Koa. Hallelujah. Thank you Pleasure. You can find out more about David Sachs at his counterintuitively named website, saxdavid.com. That's S-A-X-David.com. I think he's one of the very few contemporary nonfiction writers who's also kind of a prophet, and I think you should go read his stuff. And I thank him for talking with me and Leo. J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
There aren't many contemporary American novelists about whom I can say that I've read 100% of their output, but I've read 100% of Daniel Torday's output. I read his first novel when it came out about five years ago, and then I read the more recent one, Boomer One, and he is simply fabulous. We spoke several months ago, so our conversation takes no note of anything more recent in the political or current events climate. I also have to apologize that because of uh, COVID, we we were uh, technologically not up to where we are now in terms of how to do these interviews, and he sounds a little bit muffled, but don't let that keep you away from buying Boomer One or from listening to this wonderful conversation. Here I am talking with Daniel Torday. So the new book is Boomer One, which is so of the moment, not of the coronavirus moment, which we're now in, but of the past year or two when everyone is sort of picking on boomers. I'm going to sum up the plot. You're going to tell me if I miss anything. Sure. A grad student in Brooklyn, having trouble making it, down on his luck, moving from adjunct gig to adjunct gig, trying to publish something in a small quarterly. Eventually, it doesn't work out. He's 30 years old. He moves home to Baltimore. He's like shooting hoops at the JCC that he played at in junior high. <laughs> that was way too close to the bone for me. I apologize. I definitely moved back in with my parents after college in 1996. I definitely was like back at the same JCC and thought, wow, that was a lot of expensive education to get me nowhere <laughs> at all. I think it's actually a very common experience, right? Like when right. people did move back into your grandparents' house in Mount Airy at some point, right? Right. And then he becomes a kind of internet celebrity by posting these YouTube videos attacking the boomers for refusing to ever retire. He's decided that he's unemployed because there are too many 70-year-olds who refuse to get out of the academic jobs they've squatted on. And he starts a movement, a nationwide anti-boomer movement. Is that fair? Are you good with that? It is exactly right, and, and it's you know it's balanced by the fact that there's two other narrators. One who's his, his sort of younger millennial girlfriend, Kathy, who wants to be a punk rock bassist, and his mother, who was a kind of successful in like the San Francisco Grateful Dead scene, who now lives in Baltimore. So, and I think I just really like their voices as counterpoints. And so Julia came to be my favorite character. Like I'm a bluegrass mandolin player, and so like I gave her musical abilities and turned her into the person I wish I could have been if I could have played with the dead. And to give people a sense of how hilarious this book is, and I won't give away everything, but when the movement starts coming for the boomers, they start egging Paul Simon's house, they start burning L.L. Bean fleece vests. Like, remind us some of the cultural totems of boomerhood that, that come in for it. They throw trash cans through Terry Gross's windows until they hear it, until they hear why. They attack the Moosewood restaurant in Ithaca. It's, and also the first thing they do is they shut down the AARP. So they're like... <laughs> very focused on boomers. You know, I think there's like a balance in that like we're in the midst of this incredibly morbid moment where a lot of old people are apparently about to lose their lives. And so there's like a weird balance between not wanting to have predicted aspects of things. Let me put it this way. It seemed like a complete farce when I started writing five years ago. I literally was like, what's an identity politics argument that I could make that's so farcical that it couldn't happen? Right. You leap ahead to how torturously ironic this seems in COVID-19 days when boomers are dying. But even let's go back three months or even six months or a year ago before we'd heard of coronavirus. You had predicted like old people would come in for mockery from young people that the term OK boomer, which is really of the last year or two, would be a way that college kids and 30 year olds would be deriding their grandparents, which is, I mean, how did you know? I have this weird little like Steiner box that I get into and when I'm in there, <laughs> I told you what's going to happen. No, I, I mean, so here's the thing, at least for me as a novelist, the past is prologue thing works. And I was reading all this Shakespeare and when I was reading through Julius Caesar, 
in addition to the sort of like boring tropes that America is becoming the Roman Empire about to fall, like there's this way in which Cassius and Brutus and their attack on Caesar, it just sounds like exactly like the way millennials were talking about baby boomers. So, I mean, I do think that there was an experience in reading that Shakespeare that was just like, oh, like this is an inevitable conflict when we get to the point that boomers are ready to retire. You saw this in Julius Caesar. Shakespeare gave you the idea. Caesar basically was like 35 to 40 during that period. And like he's deaf in one ear because he, he was in this cold water and actually it was Brutus who saved him from drowning. You know, I don't know if we know exactly that the ages match up, but it is kind of like generational conflict after friendship that takes place. It also just sort of tickled my sweet spot because I have noticed that the only fashionable prejudice, and I've noticed this really in the last three, four years, although you you were at least a couple years ahead of me and you put it into literature— I've noticed that the only fashionable prejudice, the only permissible prejudice is against old people. And it's become pretty poisonous to the point that now if you're on a hiring committee, people will openly say, oh, we've got to get a great young person in here, which is illegal to say. Ageism is, is a protective status. There's no question about right. it. Age over 40 is in the Civil Rights Act. You're actually not allowed to say we want a young person in here, but everyone thinks that that's okay. And meanwhile, old people suffer tremendous discrimination. I mean, try being an unemployed 53-year-old right now. Yeah. Nobody thinks it's cool to hire you. Nobody's saying we got to get some more experience in here, some more age in here, some more gray hairs. I certainly ascribe to the Chekhovian. My job is just to try to describe as best I can what I hear people saying. But I do also think that I was really itchy about the level of identity politics conversations that were going on around from right before the election of the fascists through now. And it seemed like an almost inevitability. I mean, like, what's a more intractable identity than your age, right? But here's the question. And I realize you're just the writer. You're just describing this. But if I can ask you to play pundit for a minute. Why are the old people not fighting back? Like in the 60s and the 70s, there were the Grey Panthers. There were militant old people. Like where the hell are the militant old people who were kind of telling the young people what it is? Well, here's what's hard is I think that there's like a divide enough in our politics that in a weird way, I think what you're asking is why are the, why are like the old deadheads not fighting back? And the answer is like Mitch McConnell sure as hell is and maybe he started the fight. Right. I mean, I think there's a little bit of like a political divide where like, isn't that kind of what imagination is about on some level? But they're not the old dead. Maybe it's just there aren't enough old deadheads out there. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. It's like the old deadheads aren't fighting back. And, right. and you're right in Missouri that they're not. But like the old John Birchers are kind of leading the charge. I guess that's right. Why are the old hippies being so damn peaceful? Well, because they're old hippies and, <laughs> and they're so damn peaceful. I mean, I think they've started to get a little annoyed. And there's like a little bit of fish and barrel aspect to it. Like I, I saw my fair share of dead shows when I was in high school. And I think by the time I was in college, people like were starting to look down their noses at it, right? I guess so. I mean, part of it is and we're getting pretty far afield from your book, but there is a kind of loss of cultural confidence. Like if you're a cool old person, you don't want to defend the jam band tradition. You're so attuned to the youth being right because part of your ideology was that the youth are right. That's right. And that was your ideology when you were young, but you're not willing to let go of that. Now you can't now say, actually our generation is right. It's still the young people who are right. So when they tell you that government mule is not a worthy successor to the dead, you kind of roll over <laughs> and say, okay, I guess it's not. We have no more culture. Listen, if Warren Haynes is listening, I want to just say, I really like government meals. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. Like, nobody wants that culture just to roll on by. Right. But at the same time, like as, as resources get limited and as people live longer, there is a kind of inevitable conflict. I mean, I'll also say, and this may be like a muddy way of thinking about the book, but like I definitely came not to believe in like the idea of generationalism. There's a lot of really good research going back to the 50s about the idea of cohorts being a sort of like reasonable way to think about age, but that generations aren't. But what's complicated is the boomers are sort of the most definable generation in American history because of how clearly it's 1946 to 1964, right? Right. 
so like boomers like are particularly like I'm not even sure if I'm Generation X or a millennial based on when I was born, but like boomers are boomers. Totally. And when Cassie, so she ends up, and again, we're not worried about spoilers. The book is delight, even if you know exactly what's going to happen, which you sort of do from pretty early on. She ends up getting like headhunted by the Silicon Valley firm. And that too was tough for me to read, even as I was enjoying it, because I thought like, you know, I got out of college right into the Amazon.com boom. I mean, the late 90s, right? Like, and I thought, how did I miss that gravy train? So many of my friends were headhunted right into Silicon Valley firms that didn't do anything in particular and ended up with stock options and whatever. Like, yep. You know, and some of them were the punk violists or whatever, or fiddlers and bassists. And I don't know, were you ever, when did you get out of college? So I graduated in 2000. So I actually like just missed that. And I got super lucky. I got a job working at Esquire magazine right out of school. But, but I, you know, like I saw the ways that I had to kind of like yoga my way into actually caring about some of the work that I was doing there. And, and I certainly was watching friends who um, had to like figure out how to like create a flash mob <laughs> or uh, <laughs> work for Google. I think the Cassie character for me kind of on her own, but she became someone who was adept at going with the flow and that led her to more success than like the ideologue. And I think it's like a useful dichotomy. Not to nerd out even harder, but like I tried to read everything that I could about American revolutions and, and everything from like John Brown to Emma Goldman sure. forward. Like has that moment where it's just like it's a little too stringent, but it's also probably right. And like Alexander Berkman shooting a, at the time the equivalent of a billionaire in the stomach or, or John Brown essentially being credited with domestic terrorism that led to the end of slavery. Like there's go along to get along and then there's pushback and like, it's all pretty like jigsaw intertwined for me, you know? I definitely think that as people are hunkering down, lots of us have less time on our hands. Some of us, of course, are trying to figure out where to make up our lost income. Others are worried about our health or the health of loved ones, but some of us will have more time on our hands regardless in which to read some books. Your book, Boomer One, should be one of them. What do you have to recommend for people? What's some bunker reading for the next month or two, either that you've done recently or that's on your nightstand? Something popular, but also if there's an obscure author who deserves more attention. I don't know. Give people a syllabus. I think my favorite recent novel is a, there's a German writer named Jenny Erpenbeck. There's a book called Go Lent Gone. that's about the refugee crisis in Germany. I think she'll win the Nobel Prize at some point. I think that book is really, really beautiful. All-time favorite novel? Do you have one? Times can push one forward into different spaces. I used to always just list off like 18 different Philip Roth novels. And this is kind of like a weird thing, but over time, W.G. Zabel to The Emigrants. Oh, interesting. The book that sticks with me the most. I've taught it probably 10 times, and it's not easy, but it repays rereading in a book that almost no book I've ever encountered repays. Uh-huh. I think I tried Rings of Saturn once, but I don't think I ever tried The Emigrants. Well, you know, Rings of Saturn is like particularly formless. The Emigrants is actually sort of just like four linked-ish short yeah. stories. And it really is about the sort of German experience after World War II. And then he was not Jewish, but it's very much about the sort of like Jewish Holocaust experience from the long view in a way that I just find so beautiful. And what? what how old are your kids? I have a seven and a 10-year-old. What are they reading or what are you hoping they'll read? My 10-year-old is currently doing reading Olympics, which can't unfortunately meet. She really loves reading this book called Strongheart. It's about like a dog that saved a lot of people, I want to say during the McCarthy era. Um, <laughs> That's what my grandparents and their communist friends needed was a dog. <laughs> it is really something. We actually, uh, we recently met Judy Bloom and she gave us a bunch of her books. We were reading Blubber, so that's really uh-huh. cool. She signed them. And my seven-year-old is a big Willems fan. We're in that cool period where like, I'm not reading them to her, she's reading them to me, which is like the best period. Nice. The website is danieltorday.com. The book is Boomer One. There are earlier books if you find that you need more Torday. Thank you so much. Thank you for the book. It was a great treat for me, and we'll talk again. Total pleasure, Mark.
Daniel Torday lives in greater Philadelphia, and his new novel is Boomer One. Mazel tov. So Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov to Matt and Matilda Sheeran, who welcomed baby boy Cy into the family, into the J Crew, and we are so excited for you guys. Yay! And as we welcome one Jew, we say farewell to another. This is not really a mazel tov, except on a life well-lived. Albert Mami, the famous Jewish Arab intellectual, as he called himself, died at age 99. His books and novels were those of a Tunisian-born Jew who fled France as a left-wing Zionist who supported a Palestinian homeland, and as just a sort of... Uh, cantankerous tumbler in the intellectual life of Israel. And we always love our cantankerous tumblers. So a farewell to Albert Memi and a mazel tov to the Harvard University graduate students who finally got a contract. Uh, and I support their union movement and I, I wish them well, uh, should they ever be able to actually learn or teach in person again. But but kudos to you, uh, Harvard University graduate students. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I have, a, I have a mazel tov to a young man. Um, he's not very accomplished. He hasn't done much uh, in life yet, but he's 79. Uh, and this week, Robert Zimmerman, good old Bob Dylan, who we trash talked on this here show a few weeks ago, dropped uh, his current album, which I believe is the 738th studio album he'd released. And it is amazing really it's really a fantastic dark thoughtful surprising it's great so young man i think i think great things are in store for you <laughs> do you think he might he could be a contender someday he could you know he could make it in america a contender for jew of the week i have to say bob dylan was in my dream last night he was performing a song about vince vaughn and for the whole entire night i couldn't remember what vince vaughn's name was so i woke up saying oh it's Vince Vaughn. And now I'm singing about Vince Vaughn. That's so interesting because I had a dream last week and Lyle Lovett was singing a song about John Favreau. Not the speechwriter, <laughs> but the one who was in Swingers with Vince Vaughn. And I woke Sid up and I said, Lyle Lovett is singing about John Favreau. And then I went Are back to Are you making fun of me? Not at all. The only Lyle Lovett I know is Lyle Lovettovitz. Lyle had a dream in which the Avid brothers were singing a song about one of the Chris's, but they didn't know if it was Hemsworth or Evans. Pine, Pratt, I you never know. had a dream in which me and a, an old army friend were hanging out with Gal Gadot, and all I wanted to talk about with Gal Gadot was grilling is, meat. Is, oh, no, weirder than that. It's a new garlic press I had purchased which really made you know the garlic mince nicely that's all i have to say to god all right go. let's let's end the show let's let's give the people a break <laughs> Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or better yet, call us or send us a voice memo if you want to call us 914-570-4869. You should advertise with us. A lot of listeners looking to spend money in their basements. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com to inquire if you want some unorthodox swag, some clothing. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to find the latest. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast or on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia, and he is our editor this week. Josh is on vacation, and so Robert actually has, has taken over the shop. So uh, listen closely, and, uh, and you'll hear that Scaramuccian touch in the edit. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, but this week by Kirk Hoffman. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Gabi Weinberg. And 
We record some of the time at Argo Studios, but not this week because of stuff in the world that you know about. We hope to get back there someday. We daydream about Argo Studios. Shalom, friends. This week, our version of a summer reading guide. We have three author Can I interviews. Just cut in? Sorry, you said reading like Reading. Yeah, it's a guide to the town of Reading. This week, our version of a summer reading guide. No, that- you did it again. <laughs> again. Reading. Reading. No, guide. you said reading. It sounded reading. a lot like Reading. This week, <laughs> Robert, cold open for you.